We started two weeks ago into a series called The Verbs of God. And what we did is we started into Isaiah, and, and Isaiah 61 in particular, that uh, is where Jesus quotes from in, um, in the book of, 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 well, Luke in particular, but when he, uh, he comes out of the desert and he's just been tempted, uh, he has accomplished nothing of any, he hasn't done anything particularly apart from his, he's been baptized and he's gone out into the desert, Jesus has. There've been no miracles, there's been no preaching. There's been some episodes where he kind of confounded his religious teachers as a child, which is sort of a fun story. But, um, but he hasn't really accomplished a whole lot in his life. And he, he's in a synagogue and he's in a meeting and he picks up a, stro- a scroll and it's Isaiah 61 and he reads from it and he, and he quotes uh, he quotes this passage. I'm just going to read the whole... We're going to read Isaiah, this passage from Isaiah uh, every week for the next number of weeks just to kind of recontextualize. Um, and it's important because this is, this is his bullseye. This is what he, he, this is what he establishes he is about. Right, So Isaiah 61, uh, first couple of verses says this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And these are the words that Jesus says. And then he closes up the scroll and he hands it back. He sits down and he says, Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing of them. Right? Um, But the text in Isaiah carries on a little bit further. We're just going to go just a little bit further and listen to some of the other things that would have been in the minds of the hearers of uh, when Jesus read that. And so where it carries forward... So it says here, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, full stop on Jesus' part. It carries on, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair, a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. It's amazing, amazing lyricism. It's amazing poetry. There's so much hope and promise in this. And it's written to people who uh, really didn't have a whole lot to hold on to promise-wise. They were, by this point, um, uh, in exile, uh, under Babylonian rule at this point in Isaiah. Um, There's a lot of things that are not going for them. And Isaiah says this this thing and um, I've actually blanked right now on the amount of uh, the, the number of centuries that exist between this writing of the text and when Jesus uh, quotes it uh, I, I, I think it's something like 600 years but I uh, it's somewhere in there uh, it's, it's a lot if you think about what the world looked like 600 years ago, you get a sense that a lot, had, a lot of history had gone on, right? Um, and, and so when Jesus says these things and says they're fulfilled in your hearing, 
And this is again what he references as a proof um, when his cousin, John, is disillusioned and in prison and not sure what's going on. Many of you are familiar with this. John says, you know, he sends somebody to Jesus and says, is it, are you really, are you really the one? Like, I just kind of need to know, right? And, and again, it's, it's this text and it's married to another passage in Isaiah, but it's where Jesus goes to say, yes, look, this is what's taking place. This is what's taking place. Um, but what's profound for me as we look into the specific language of the text is that, um, and again, over the next number of weeks, we're going to hammer on this thing. Jesus said, it is fulfilled today in your hearing, even though he hadn't done anything. He didn't announce it as a campaign. Look what I'm going to do. He said, this is done. And that's confusing language to me on some level because I'm an action person and Jesus hadn't done anything at that point. Um... And so the punchline, and I'm a, I'm, I have, whether it's a, a great speaking technique or not, I like to get the punchline away at the beginning so that we can keep it as part of our filter for understanding the rest, right? Jesus is the embodiment of everything we're going to talk about, right? It, it's not just in the doing, it's in the presence, so he could say, it is fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because he's there. Because he is present. And in him is the fullness of all of the things we hope for. In him is the fullness of his mission. Right? That becomes unpacked and spilled over literally for us in his blood on the cross. And in the resurrection. And we see the fulfillment of that. But he is the embodiment of all. He is the verb of God. He is the action of God. The action word of God is Jesus. And to me, that itself is good news. Right? Um, so where I want to focus this morning is just in the very first part. So Jesus says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me. To preach good news to the poor. Um, now, the challenge with this sort of thing is that if we have been followers of Jesus for any length of time, there is absolutely nothing new in this text. This is something that we've probably heard over and over again. The language of the good news, the language of gospel, the language of evangelist Evangelism, which is really rooted in the same word, in the same language, and it, it's, it's the proclamation of a really good thing. And so it can become very rote, because we have heard this stuff so many times. And the invitation this morning is to try to encounter this fresh. Because if I look at the landscape of my life... It is very clear to me that I have lots of ways to encounter the good news of the gospel. It's not in the past tense. This is not something I can look at and put a, a period on and say, okay, I've done that bit of it. I've done that bit. My life is now governed as though the good news of God is firmly established. Now I can get on with the rest of it. 
This is an ongoing and steady reminder, right? Um, that there's, but this is an ongoing work. It is for me anyways, and I have the uh, kind of operating, my operating assumption is that I'm not alone. I need water. I'm not alone in that. So, digging into, digging into this word here. So in the Hebrew, and I'm terrible, you guys. I'm not a scholar. I'm going to mispronounce these things every time. So just smile and nod if you know how it's really supposed to go. Yeah, thank you. I'll take that. Um, so the Hebrew word uh, for bearing good news, right, proclaiming good news is, is bas- basar. Um, and... Why do preachers like to do this? Like to go into the old language and try to unpack that a little bit? Well, it's because language is, is slippery stuff, right? And we don't necessarily have something that conveys precisely the spirit of the original language. And this is a, this is a word that is like that because... It is one word that talks about good news that is so profound that it cannot help but to be declared. Because it's one thought. It's not, see, we have to do it in a few thoughts. Good news that is declared, right? Declaring good news. But in the original language, this is something that is, um, there's, not a, there's not a pause, there's not a hyphen. There's, this is one thought, that this is news that cannot be kept. This is news that cannot be kept silent. It, it is an act fundamentally that is good, right? That is encouraging. And the definition of it is to bear news, to bear tidings, to publish, preach, show forth good things, to gladden with good news. There's something in this that is happy. Now... Most of us, I would assume, have had moments where we've received good news. Something that, it, it creates in us a response, a reaction that we, it's, it, it's not something that we construct. We don't measure the response. We have an automatic response to it that is a, a, like a leaping of our heart or a yes. Um, now, I want you to focus, if you can, on that moment recognizing that for most of us, again, in terms of just being real, a lot of us have had those moments, but then later on the road, down the road, we've been disappointed. And so we can, we can tend to like look through the lens of that disappointment and, and lose the power of that visceral response in the moment. But it's that response that I want to call us into for a second, right? You hear something and you just, you just respond with something that is happy and glad. Just find that space for a second. So there are two kinds of 
good news. Right? There's good news that is good news for everybody. Which is very uncommon, by the way. It's very uncommon to have good news that's good news for everybody. Maybe a few things. But there is also good news that is difficult news for others. Right? Good news that is difficult news for others. So, I mean, I certainly wasn't around, but I imagine, I imagine that in, in the West... Um, uh, with the Allied forces, when the war was declared over and the Allies were victorious, I think there was a whole lot of, like if they did like an MRI of the world, right, that, that part of the world would light up, the one, right? But even in that, right, not so good news for some. And what I find interesting about this and challenging about this is that Jesus is so specific in what he says. Right? Jesus says, good news for the poor. Um, and that's a funny thing to think about because because that means like if there's good, so think about this for a second. Think about this within our own within our own world. So somebody comes along with good news for the poor, and by the way, the, this idea of poor is economic, but it's not just economic. It's powerless. People, good news for the powerless. Good news for the meek. Good news for the overlooked. Right. Um, good news for those who don't usually get good news. Yay. Yay. Is that, would you assume that that's good news for the prevailing powers of the day? <laughs> Not exceedingly good news for the powers of the day, right? There is, a, there is a wrestle in that. Do you think that, um, you know, for the, I mean, they, let's recognize that they, mur- they murdered Jesus. He was politically assassinated. That's what that was. That's what the crucifixion was. It was, it was, a, it was a political and religious assassination. He was, he was murdered by, by his enemies, right? And, and so it, it causes me, as I think about it and as I, as I consider, it, it kind of makes me pause just a little bit. Because I can't say that identifying with the poor and with the powerless with the overlooked is necessarily my favorite lane to be in, right? I really love encountering God when I have power and control over my life. I like being able to measure those things. I like, I like that. I like winning. I really like, I really like winning. I would say I'm pretty good at losing board games because I, I'm terrible at them, and so it's a coping mechanism. But in, in cards, too, except for Euchre. Watch out in Euchre. I'm actually a threat, but the rest of them, the rest of them, I'm just there to make you look good. Um, but, in, <laughs> but in life, I like to win. 
And so when I see Jesus' language and Isaiah's language, and it's focused not to the winners. I mean, this is harsh. This is going to be a harsh word, but this is kind of what's being, you know, good news for the losers. That makes people quake a little bit. And when I think about Jesus being this, this, this is who Jesus is. He is good news to the poor. What does, it rec- what does it look like to, to receive that then? It doesn't mean that I want to create poverty in my life. But it really compels me to not gloss over the poverty in my life. And I'm challenged by that because I feel like as a culture, we're taught to do that, to gloss over our, in, our poverty, to become numb to it, to ignore it. And yet, there's a couple of stories that make me pause because it makes me think maybe it's possible to not be on the receiving end of the good news. In Luke, this is the very next chapter, actually. Luke, or Jesus has gone out and he's done some very cool things and he's healed a bunch of people and he's cast out some demons and he's done a bunch of Jesus-y things. He's moved in power, right? He's starting to show everyone what he meant when he said, I'm here, it's done. And uh, so in chapter 5, um, after... Doing these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth, uh, who's basically, the best way to understand him is that he was the villain in the story, this tax collector. Um, And Jesus says to him, follow me. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. And then um, in his following, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating there with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? So the question is to me, did Jesus come for me? Or did he not come for me? Because there's something here. And of course he's playing his language a little bit. Right? Because of course he's available to everybody. But he says, I didn't come for the righteous. I think we could read this fairly and say that Jesus said, I didn't come for the right, those who are righteous in their own eyes. Right? You know, Jesus has been, uh, since we uh, heard him speak from the text in Isaiah in chapter 4, he goes on and he's, like I said, he's healed a whole bunch of people and he's cast out some demons. And there are a bunch of people who are gathering around him now. There are crowds of people. And, uh, And he's starting to rub the authorities the wrong way. They're starting to get intimidated and not comfortable with how this thing is playing itself out. 
And it's interesting. I started to think about this. So Jesus is surrounding himself with lots of sick and nasty people. <laughs> sick and nasty people. I hate waiting rooms at hospitals. Right? I, I despise it. Like, Liv will attest to this. Like, even when I go to support Liv, I am often outside of the waiting room, like, on the other side of glass somewhere. Because I just don't want to get sick. The snot and the coughing and the bleeding and the misery. <laughs> it's terrible. Right? This is the crew that Jesus has assembled who are coming to him. Sick people. Why? Because he heals them. Right? I have to, I've, I've just recognized that. I need, if I want to receive this good news, if I want to receive Jesus as good news, I got rec- to actually look and not gloss over my sickness, my poverty, my own nastiness. We're going to close with we're going to close with, with just a reflection on. We're going to jump over to Matthew eighteen. I'm just going to paraphrase this, but you can look up afterwards, uh, just for the sake of time. Matthew 18, verses 23 and 34, if you are taking some notes. Um, And so Jesus tells a parable, and he tells a parable of a king who decides to call in all of his debts. And so um, somebody, one of his servants comes who has a debt that is somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million. And and the king says, um, the king says, basically, pay up. The guy says, I can't. I, I can't. I don't have ten million dollars. And the king says, All right, off with you, you and your you and your family in prison uh, until you can repay. And then the guy falls to his knees and he says, Lord, I, I can't. Like, please have mercy. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Have mercy. Have mercy. I'll pay you back. Give me time. And then the king says, Fine, don't pay me anything. It's the strangest kind of exchange, right? Don't pay me anything, you got it. Um, you're clear. So then, and we probably, a lot of us know the story, so this guy goes off and he finds someone who owes him like, I don't know, 50 bucks or something. And he says, you owe me 50 bucks. And the guy says, the same thing. I can't, listen, I need, to, I need some time. And, um, and this wicked, nasty dude says, uh, no, I need your money and you're gonna and go to prison until you can, until you can pay this back. Right, And then other people see it and, and rat him out. And he goes back to the king. And the king has a nasty exchange. And says, you're done. You owe me everything. Right? Now, Jesus told the story in relation to forgiveness. To the scope and to the size of forgiveness. And, um, but what I... It's so funny. Who was the more impoverished person in this story? The person who owed the $10 million or the person who owed the 50 bucks? Who was poorer? It's not a trick question. Who would you... Okay, let me, let me, change, the, let me change the equation. 
You owe me $50 or you owe me $10 million. Who do you want to be? 50 bucks. Okay, let's make it this simple. Okay. So the guy who owes 50 bucks is not as in debt, right? Um, but what's funny is that who do you, do you know anybody who has massive, massive amounts of debt? Like, yeah, not consumer debt. Like, do you know that? Do you know that a lot of business owners, a lot of the people who live in these fantastically huge homes, if you were to actually call it in in any given moment, a lot of those, a lot of those individuals have massive amounts of, of debt. It's investing debt that they've done, right? They've been entrusted with a large amount of money. And I was thinking about this. What kind of person? Oh, I've gone over my time. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm a nasty person. <laughs> I'm a liar this morning. Um, I'm going to try to wrap this up, though. Uh, you don't... You, you, you don't get $10 million in debt without being a highly trusted person. Do you think that the person who was worth 10, or that had a, a, a debt of $10 million, do you think that they lived like a poor person or do you think they lived like a rich person? Right. Or, they, or, or maybe they were just in control of a large amount of assets. Right? They're trusted people. And, and so... As I was reflecting on this and on what it looks like to not just to receive the good news, which is to recognize poverty, but also to ask the question, what does it look like to be a community who is good news? Because part of the challenge for me with this series is we look at the verbs of God, as we look at this idea of proclaiming good news to the poor is that the invitation is, is, yes, it is to recognize that Jesus is that embodied. We are the body of Christ. And so what does it look like? So here's the kind of takeaway question this morning. What does it look like for us as people, as a group of people, as a church, as a representation of the body of Christ in our world, to be the kind of people who wipe away debt, who, when somebody walks into the room, judgment, it's not just that they're, it's not just that they're not judged, that they don't feel judged, it's that they're received. To be an active verb in this way, not just passive, not just to withhold judgment from someone who comes in who stinks, but to actually receive them. To, 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 to welcome and to say, you got no debts here. Good news. You're poor. I mean, we wouldn't say that. That would be rude. <laughs> but to live that, there's good news for you. And you're in a good club. Right? Jesus said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing of it. So Lord, we ask that uh, as we go from this place this morning, that you would make us people who um, somehow embody this. 
God, that you would allow us to be people who are brave enough to take an honest look at our lives. And God, this high fidelity word. Because we really need you, Jesus. We're not just people who are in your club because we believe some things you said. Or because we believe the right things that you said. We're here, Jesus, because we need you. So God, we invite you into all of the little places. God, we ask that we would have a capacity to encounter all of those in the low places around us. Teach us this. In your name we pray. Amen. I like you. (laughs) All right. Well, have a great week, everybody. If you need some prayer, this is a good place to get some prayer so you can find someone you trust. Turn to your neighbor. Ask me. Whoever. My parents are pretty cool people, too. And uh, we can pray for you. Um, Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you next week.